bypass surgery in August and had a huge um, complication from it. She was very, very sick, had to have a second reparative surgery and has been in a nursing home for a month, um, recovering and getting stronger. So God is healed. Yeah, praise God. We're so happy for that. Yeah, and she got to be home for Thanksgiving. And Sally, we always just have to commend you for just the care that you've been giving to your family. And I know it's been hard with you and Ray having to live apart to care for Sandy. So we're praising God to be back at home. Huge. <laughs> what happened? So we need to pray for Andy's head. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, anyways, this past Thanksgiving, I was finally able to uh, tell our family some incredible news. Noelle's going to be a big sister. Oh, praise God. Yeah. <laughs> so we're super happy about that. And now that we told our family, I can tell whoever I want. So. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we also need open. prayer for Eric's head. <laughs> oh, awesome. Praise God, you guys. We're really excited about that. Gonna ask, do we, when is expected? End of June. Coming around. Oh, that's exciting. Greetings. Uh, take the mic mostly to test it, uh, <laughs> but also. Um, was it two two weeks ago? I think I asked for prayer for my dad. He's been trying to find a new pastoral position. Uh, the one that we're currently pursuing is in Cleveland, Ohio. He has been asked to come out and candidate slash check out the area and church the weekend of the eleventh. So, praise God, uh, that was really cool. How's they go out? Visit, pray for clarity, pray for direction, praying for their encouragement. Just kind of a <clears throat> catch up on things. Carol is feeling well. She had surgery and tomorrow is going to have it unbandaged and it's come out mm. uh, it won't be healed and she won't be able to walk on it almost mm -hmm. it's moving forward so that's good the her request is for <coughs> a family they have worked with cadence for many years he passed away on friday in in his 80s and just had been doing pretty well being in the hospital but went to lay down and take a nap woke mm. up in glory so mm. just pray for his family there's a mm. lot of sudden changes that have to happen and uh, his wife had had a stroke number and doing well but uh, mm. anyway the system will have to be a lot of change for them, family, with Cadence, the 
Um, I just want to praise God that we were able to attend um, Thanksgiving with our family and that me and my sister were able to pull off a whole meal without my mom. So that was cool. Um, (laughs) And um, I just want to ask for prayers. My dad is going in for knee surgery December 7th um, for a whole knee knee replacement. So he's going to be laid up for a while, and we're supposed to, me and my sister are going to be taking care of him. Mm-hmm. So, just prayers that we were able to do. Good to be with family. Must have been hard first Thanksgiving without mom, but that's great. Well, if that is it, then here's what I want to do. Um, so. Five different people um, just shared. Would those of you who are seated around one of those five people come around that person, um, maybe five or six people, um, and would you pray um, just for that request? Maybe just have one or two people um, pray for the request that was shared. Can we do that? Um, and so Sally shared to start with. And so I'm going to ask, can a few people um, gather around Sally? Praise God that Sandy um, is healing she's going home, that Sally now gets to go back home and be with Ray. So some people can go gather around Sally and then have maybe two of you pray. Um, Then Caleb, (laughs) up in the corner, pray for Andy's head, the concussion she just sustained. Um, But praising God um, for the new baby that will be coming into their family in June and all of the prayers that they're going to need in light of that. And then would some people gather around Creedon um, as you pray for his family, um, pray for his parents, as they now seek, if it's God's will for them to move to Cleveland to pastor that church out there and to continue praying for that. Um, would some of you gather around Mark here in front? Um, pray for Carol's foot surgery. When is her surgery? It's done. That's right. She's healing. She's just in a boot. So praying for healing there. And then pray for his coworker's family who just passed away, that cadence worker. And then Kayla. Kayla's over on this side. And so would some of you gather around And a few of you um, just praise God that they were able to be together as a family um, with the first Thanksgiving without mom. Um, And would you pray for dad's knee surgery on December 7th? Can you do that? Okay, so as you gather around, I'm going to start in prayer. Then we're going to give a few minutes um, for you guys to pray. And then I will conclude. I will come back up and I will pray. And then we will finish. Um, For those of you who haven't moved, um, would you, wherever you're sitting, um, would you just pray for one of these that has come to mind? Maybe it's the closest one. Maybe it's one that God really just highlighted in your hearts and minds. But would you just join us as a family in prayer as we now lift up one another as these people have shared. So let me pray. We'll go to God with these things. So Father God, we just thank you for being a God who hears us, who cares for us, a God who is close to us. We just praise you as we have worked our way through your word that you've reminded us that you are the God who sees and hears. So we come before you in light of that. Thank you that Jesus has torn the veil that we can enter into your presence. So now we enter boldly. We enter boldly asking for healing. We enter boldly with our praise, with our thanksgiving, just laying it at your feet, declaring how good you are. And we enter boldly asking just for direction, for help, for guidance in light of these situations. And so God, now as we turn to you in prayer, we turn your ear to us. Jesus, it's in your holy name that we pray. Amen.
for being the God who is near to us and close to us. Um, we just look around this room and we thank you for our church family. We thank you that of all the places we could live, all the places we, should, we could worship, um, that you placed us here, um, not by accident, but that you've put these people around us to strengthen us, to encourage us, and so that we would be an encouragement to them, so that we could play a role in being your hands and feet to them, so that we could speak the truth and love in the situations where the discouragement comes at them. God, we just thank you. Thank you for this church family. And, and in this exercise where we often stand, sit, in a quiet room, seeing what it is that we are asking for you to do in our lives, God, would you just continue to bind us together in unity, continue to, to bring us together as a family, that we would be a people open to share, that we'd be a people quick to jump in, and God, I just praise you for this church. I just thank you for just giving us people in our lives. Jump right next to us in our times of need, lift us up in prayer, and who care for us in that way. Make me more like that continue to just develop that spirit in us. We would come to know you better because of the people that you've put in our lives. Because each and every one of us is a temple of your Holy Spirit. You lead us, direct us, and guide us. So we just thank you for this time. Time with family coming before you. Now, God, we've put these requests at your feet. We have put these praises at your feet. We just ask that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. So Jesus, in your holy name that I pray. Amen. Okay, well, I'm going to give you some time to get back to your seats. Um, and we're actually going to transition um, into something a little different here, is we are going to do communion right now in the center of our worship service instead of at the end like we usually do it. And I'll just kind of explain um, why we want to do that. And really, this comes out of our next sermon series, which we're taking a break from Abraham, and we're moving into our Advent series, because today's the first week of Advent. I don't know if you know that. Merry Christmas, Merry Advent. Um, but we're not super traditional, so we don't have all the candles and all the Advent readings um, that you might see in a more Advent-following church. Um, but what we want to do during this time of Advent is just make it clear to ourselves, to our hearts and minds, that this season is all about Jesus. It is all about Jesus. And this isn't about, like, the war on Christmas. I'm not, like, anti-Santa or the Grinch where I like, don't like other things that are celebrated during Christmas that are not about Jesus. I don't really care about that. I don't expect people to celebrate Jesus on Christmas. They don't celebrate Jesus every Sunday. Um, but what this is about is just focusing our, our hearts and minds on Jesus. Um, and we have kind of stopped as a church to consider, well, what is it that we do you know, each and every Sunday? How much of it is focused on Jesus? How much of it is all about Jesus? And as I was just considering this and praying and, and reading through some things, you know, I'm reminded of the, the five solas out of the Reformation. Five solas was the, the five key doctrines that came out of the Reformation, separating us from the Roman church there. And the five are only grace, only faith, only Christ, only scripture, and only God's glory. And one of the key things that the Reformers did is they put the sola of solus Christus, at the very center of the five. So there are two on one side, there's Christ, and there's two on the other side. It's number three. And the reason that they did that was to show how Christ truly is the center of all that we believe, all that we practice. And it was Michael Reeves, um, who has a, a long, long textbook on Reformation theology, but he said this. He said, the center, the cornerstone, 
The jewel in the crown of Christianity is not an idea, not a system or a thing. It's not even the gospel as such. It's Jesus Christ. And what we see as we look through the Bible is Jesus constantly putting himself at the center of the story, putting himself at the center of all that the Old Testament, all that the Bible is about. Um, we know that when he walked with the disciples on the Emmaus Road, he, or when he sat down with them after he walked, he taught them everything the scripture said about him. We know in Acts chapter 4, it says, there's no other name by which we are saved, Jesus Christ. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, it says, there is no other mediator between God and man. And so as we seek to make Jesus the focus during this time, as we seek to make Jesus the center, um, we just thought, well, what better way than to put communion, the body and the blood of Christ, at the center of our gathering, um, at the center. And maybe this change of habit as well can be a bit of a wake-up call for us to realize, like, oh, maybe we just kind of go through the motions of last Sunday of every month, we come before the table in this way, and it seems like just this normal routine thing. But maybe this will wake us up a little bit to see, oh, this is Christ at the center of our lives, at the center of our worship, at the center of everything. And hopefully that would encourage us to continue to put him first. Um, because as we see the instructions for communion— in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the Apostle Paul writing to the Corinthian church. He has some hard words for them, of course. He says, what you are practicing is not the Lord's Supper, essentially, um, because he says that some of you, he says, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. For as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. He says, don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. And he goes on later to say that we ought to examine, or that a man ought to examine himself before he eats the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. So the focus here is Jesus. The focus of all of this is Jesus. And so as we come before the table, I just want to make that again front and center in our, on our hearts and minds. I'm not worried with the way that we practice communion about anyone getting drunk or leaving others hungry, but I think the application still stands that we're called to recognize the body. Um, we're called to recognize Christ in this. This is about Christ. And so I'm going to dismiss you now to come and grab the communion. We have elements in the front and then there's one in the back there um, would you come grab them and then return to your seats so that we could take this together so we could practice together
for God, we've worshiped, we've praised him, um, we've prayed for one another, and later we're going to worship more, we're going to come before God's word, come before a sermon, come before a teaching, but right here in the center of it all, I want us to see Christ here. The Apostle Paul said this in that same chapter. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So would you do this in remembrance of Christ? same way as after supper Jesus took the cup saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me he says for whenever you eat this bread and you drink this cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes let's drink this proclamation of Jesus' death so Jesus we thank you we thank you for the bread and the wine for your body and blood we just focus our hearts and minds on you who you are on what you've done would you continue to be the center of all of our lives would you be the center of our lives at work at home in our relationships, in our singleness, in our hobbies, God, in everything we do, would you be the center? And out of that place, uh, would you just infuse everything with your love, with your life, with your goodness? God, we just want to be a people who see you and make you the center of all things. So we just thank you for the work that you've done on the cross. We thank you that through the breaking of your body that you've brought us together as one body. We thank you that for the shedding of your blood, You've given us hope, an everlasting life, of eternal life of knowing you. So we just come before your word now with a posture of thanksgiving, with a posture that recognizes what we have to hope for because of what you've done. So we just thank you. Jesus, in your name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for participating in that as we, again, uh, we just seek to make Christ the center. Um, as we seek to make all of our lives, our work, our play, whatever it is, all about Jesus. And as I said, this is what we're going to be talking about for the next few weeks leading up to Christmas. The Abraham series is now cut off, and we will look at this series here, kind of loosely following the Advent themes. Um, and so today... Really what we're doing is we're going to be working our way backwards through Jesus' life with, of course, on Christmas, looking at his birth. Um, so we'll work our way backwards through his life here. And today, with the Advent theme of hope, we're going to look at what were some of the last little sections of Jesus' life, and that is the resurrection. And I really want to consider the hope that we have because of the resurrection. And again, the goal kind of of this whole series is that we would see that it's all about Jesus. 
of us continuing to come before the story that we have in the Gospels and how that affects our lives and how our lives are truly changed by that. Jesus truly placed himself at the center, and so we are placing himself at the center of all we think and do. Um, we watched a little video before church this morning, um, and it was a little CMA video talking about the mission emphasis or kind of the mission statement of the CMA right now, and that is all of Jesus for all the world. Um, and this has been a big uh, emphasis of the Alliance for a long time, all of Jesus for all the world. And A.B. Simpson, the founder of the Alliance, he has a pretty well-known hymn that he wrote a while back called Jesus Only. And it's loosely based on Matthew chapter 17, the transfiguration, where in verse 8, it says that they saw no man save, save Jesus only. And so his hymn goes on like this, inspired by that. It says, Jesus only is our message. Jesus, all our theme shall be. We will lift up Jesus forever. Jesus only we will see. So that's the goal as we move through this message, continue to worship leading up to Christmas, is that we would see no man but Jesus. He would be the focus. Today, we're going to look at the part of Jesus' life through which we have an eternal hope, the resurrection. And really, this is not what we would think of as a Christmas message. This is really an Easter message. But what you'll notice as you read the New Testament is that this wasn't a once-a-year message that the early Christians talked about. This was like an every-time-they-gather message, where every time they gather, not just on Easter, they would talk about the resurrection. They would talk about this category-smashing event where Jesus was alive. He came back from the dead. And we're going to go to two places to look at the resurrection of Jesus. First, we're going to go to the end of John's Gospel in John chapter 20, and then we're going to go to 1 Corinthians 15. We actually have quite a bit of reading today. Um, but really what we're going to do is I want us to start with John 20, and we're just going to read the resurrection accounts. We're just going to read what Jesus was like after the resurrection, and I'm not actually going to teach from them. I'm just going to put it out there. I want you guys to take some mental notes. I want you guys to be aware of what is happening, see what it is that Jesus is like in that text and in these stories. We're gonna, then we're going to go to 1 Corinthians 15, which is essentially Paul teaching on this, Paul teaching on the resurrection. It's Paul's commentary on it. And hopefully, because we've read the John 20 story, we'll be able to see exactly what Paul was talking about there. But that's the hope today, is to look at the resurrection and to look at the hope that we have. And I think it's important to consider this, because when it comes to our hope, when it comes to our lives, we know very well, many of us know all too well, that death affects all of us, right? All of us in our lives have been affected one way or another by death. And we have all these questions about our loved ones who have passed away. You know, what are they doing now? Uh, where are they? What is life like for them? Um, and what is eternity going to be like? What, essentially, it's that big existential question, what really happens after death? And I think those obviously are hard questions to answer. Most of us only speculate what exactly it means. Um, but we do actually know someone who went through death and came back. It's going to tell us all about it. It's not any of those wackos who wrote books about it and said, well, the grass is really green when you die. Not interested in any of those books about the people who claim to have <laughs> gone through death and came back. Um, but instead, there's one person who did that we know of. It's Jesus. And it's recorded in this book here. And so if you found your way to John chapter 20, 
we're just going to read these resurrection appearances. We're going to start in verse 5, and we're going to read all the way to verse 29. And so again, just take some mental notes as we consider what is life going to be like after death. Take some notes here. I think this, these stories in this passage is going to shed some light on that. And so, the women had just seen that the tomb was empty. They told the disciples, James, not James, uh, John and Peter had a foot race to the empty tomb. John tells us in his gospel that he won the race, and now they arrive at the tomb in verse 5. So he bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying, and as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said. I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and she saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. She's ready to carry him back. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabbanai, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. Mary Magdalene went to the other disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. On the evening of the first day of the week, now we're in verse 19 here, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And after he said this, he showed them his hands and side. And the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. He said, If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. He missed out. And so the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Not going to miss out this time. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hands, your hand, and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. This two different resurrection accounts in the Gospel of John. And this, as we're going to see, is the hope that we 
have. That the hope of the Bible, after death, as we're going to see, is not just some ethereal, spiritual floating on the clouds, not just going off to some other place when we die, but that the hope that we have because of Jesus is resurrection. It's resurrection. But now this isn't often what most people think of when they think of what happens after death. Um, Pop theology usually divides life into kind of two categories, right? Life is a two-step process. You have life here in the body, and then life followed by death, which then will only take place in heaven, and that's the end of the story. But what I want to point out, that's not actually exactly what happened in Jesus' story, is it? After death, Jesus wasn't just whisked away to float away in heaven, never to be seen on earth again, was it? His body raised life again. Now, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 15. And again, this is essentially Paul's teaching on this very idea. This is Paul's commentary on the chapter that we just read. But now that we know what Jesus was like, this is going to help us to understand 1 Corinthians 15. This is going to help us to understand what the resurrection, what this eternal hope is actually going to be like. And so find your way to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And as you're going there, I'll give you a bit of a backstory. And that is that the Corinthians at the time, they believed in Jesus' resurrection. They believed in life after death, but they believed in life after death only in the place called heaven. They didn't actually believe in what happens after heaven that I think Jesus really makes clear. Um, they didn't believe in what the Bible refers to as resurrection. The idea that when, after time in heaven, that God will actually bring our bodies up out of the ground and reunite it with our spiritual being and that we will actually live for eternity in new resurrected bodies. That's actually what the Bible says, but that's not what the Corinthians believed. They didn't actually buy that. And this is actually what the Corinthians seemed to buy into the most. And they got their idea of what happens in life and death from a lot of the different Greek philosophers of the day, because Corinth was centered right in the middle of Greco-Roman culture. And one of the most influential philosophers was, of course, Plato. Um, Plato lived and taught somewhere between 400 to 300 years before Jesus. And the basic view of Plato is that there are two worlds, and they're kind of concurrent and happening simultaneous. There's the material physical world, and there's the, the spiritual, the immaterial world. But not spiritual like the way the Bible talks about it, but completely immaterial. Um, and in that immaterial spiritual world, that's what's good. The physical material world is actually bad. That's what Plato taught. He taught that all matter is evil and bad. And so that's why you see these little circles popping up in Greek philosophy where they would withhold themselves from any good pleasure. Um, they would withhold themselves from good food, from having fun, from all of those things because it had to do with matter and it had to do with your physical body, so it must be bad. Only the spiritual is good, the physical is bad. And so he said the spirit is actually the only thing that's good. And essentially, Plato's teaching is that the spiritual you is the real you, that your body is just like a meat prison you're stuck in, and really, the hope is to escape this prison of your body, to become divorced from your physicality, is what Plato taught. That 
is what we're looking for. And so that, as we see here, is actually been very influential in our culture even today because what Plato taught is that there might be a physical you, but that's not the real you. Really, there's an invisible spiritual you that is in there, and you need to discover it and figure it out, and that's actually the true you that overrides the physical you. Instead of the Bible's description that you really are a body, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, like it's all part of you, Plato's idea is that your body is actually just, it's just garbage, we just need to get rid of it, and the real you is spirit. So our culture is still today very influenced by this idea. The idea that, well, there can be a spiritual me that's very different than the physical me. And this has really influenced our modern culture's idea of gender and sexuality, right? Your body might look one way, but actually there's a true spiritual you that's invisible that actually overrides all that. And this originated with Plato. So then Plato said, at death, your soul set free from the prison of your body. Set free. And this kind of sounds similar to what most Christians have believed and thought, doesn't it? Like, well, wait, I thought that was kind of the thing. We're just set free, our body just rots, and we're just in heaven forever. And we really have to recognize that we've been, a lot of the times, the product of a Western Platonic worldview. Not as much Paul as it is Plato. And so, this is the culture that Paul is addressing. This is what Paul is speaking to here. And so they're saying, there's no resurrection of the dead. They're saying, well, Jesus might have raised from the dead, but that's different. Um, we're just going to have a spiritual resurrection. It's going to be different. And so in verse 12, that's where we'll pick it up. Paul essentially says, okay, say you're right. Say Plato is right. There's only birth, physical life on earth, and then there's death, and it's just immaterial life in heaven. That's the end of the story. If that's right, here's what that means. And Paul says in verse 12, and he's going to give us really seven things that this means in verse 12. But he says, if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? That it's just for Jesus, for us, it's only spiritual. He says, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise Christ from the dead, if in fact the dead are not raised. Well, if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, and he says your faith is futile, you are still in your sins, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. So Paul, in there, he gave us seven things that are the implications. He says, if that's the view, that if the body doesn't matter, if it's just soul and just spirit, and he gives us seven things from verse 13 to verse 19 there. He says, one, Jesus is still dead. And if, if nobody is raised, there's only spirit, and there's only physical, Jesus is still dead, which means preaching and faith are useless. He says, right? Our preaching is useless, so is your faith. He says, we are liars. This is what we've been going about telling. That's not be true. He says, your faith is a waste of time, right? You should probably be golfing right now, watching football instead of this. He said, you are still in your sins, so you are still guilty in the eyes of God, he's saying here. And we think the logic 
because what Paul is saying is that if you deny the end of the story, well, you're denying the beginning of the story as well. If no resurrection, you're denying the cross as well. And if that is true, if your idea here, Paul's saying, that you're following is true, then you're actually still guilty. You're actually still not right with God. And he says, that's also true. Your loved ones are gone, right? They're dead and gone. All those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. No hope. And then the last one, he says, of all else, if that is the truth, then we are to be pitied more than anyone. So do you think Paul has some strong opinions idea of the bodily resurrection it says if we lose this we lose everything obviously the corinthians have been saying okay well there is no resurrection it's only it's only spiritual jesus seemed to be physical in that but it must be different for us um, but one of the things that we can see very clearly from the new testament is that the word resurrection they tried to spiritualize it and be like no it's just your soul floating away like a butterfly in the New Testament, resurrection was always physical body being raised up from the dead. It was always this concrete word with one meaning, right? It doesn't just mean floating away when you die. It doesn't just mean you live on in some immaterial sense. Just like we read with Jesus, the word resurrection 100% of the time is coming back from the dead in a physical body. In a physical body, just like when Jesus did. Because when we say that Jesus is resurrected, we don't say that, well, his body didn't really, um, he just, you know, floated up like a little butterfly, and he's cute and floated around, right? We just read the story of him being touched, of him spending time with the disciples. We mean that the tomb is empty, and his body is gone. His body was gone, but Jesus was back in flesh and blood. That's what resurrection means, and that's what it has always meant in the New Testament doesn't just mean your soul's lifted. It means life in a new body, body raised from the dead. One of my favorite stories that we didn't read, that's in the next chapter of John, um, is Jesus. He just obviously come back from the dead, resurrected, and he's standing there. The disciples are in shock and awe. They're wondering, what is Jesus going to say? And Jesus says, you have something. Right? It's amazing because apparently being resurrected from the dead, works up an appetite. But this is what resurrection means. It's literally, physically, his body back to life. And literally, in the Greek, the word for resurrection of the dead um, could also be translated as resurrection of the corpses. It is resurrection of the dead bodies. Not just spirit, but of body. And so to Paul, resurrection of the dead not only Jesus' resurrection, but the future resurrection of all those who follow Jesus, it is key. It is huge. He is saying, if we lose that, we lose all of these things. Seven implications are what he says. Because without that, we have nothing. Without this physical resurrection, we have nothing. If Plato was right, then these seven things. But, continue reading in verse 20. But, Paul says, here is the good news. If you were right, this is what would be true. But here is the good news. Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. Paul says Messiah has been raised. Um, and essentially he's saying, by the grace of God, you are wrong. Um, Christ is alive. And therefore, one day, all believers will be resurrected as well. He says, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits 
of those who have fallen asleep. He says, for since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. He parallels Adam and Jesus here. I don't have time to go into the full story. But he's saying, you recognize that all people die, right? You know, I don't know if you're into statistics, but the stats on death and sin are pretty high. Um, seems like the stats on sin are about 100%. All people sin. Seems like the stats on death are about 100 as well. All people seem to die. So that is true. That's what happens because you're born in Adam. Well, in the same way, if you are born in Christ, because Christ was raised from the dead, then all people in Christ, all people who believe in him, will also be raised from the dead, he says. Which means one day, as Christ is raised from the dead, to follow him will be as well. Verse 23, he says, But each in turn, Christ, the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Um, and he uses this term first fruits over and over again, and it's a bit of a farming agricultural term for the beginning of the harvest. You know, you've got an apple tree in your yard, and the first fruits, you know that once you start to see fruit, that's not going to be the end of the story. There's going to be a lot after that. There's one, and now something has begun that is not going to stop. It's going to be one, one day, and two another day, then a hundred another day, then there's going to be harvest. And so what he's saying here is that Christ raised from the dead in his body that we read about is the first of what's going to be many bodies raised from the dead. And that the other bodies are going to be like the one that Christ had. Just like if you had one fruit out of an apple tree at the beginning of the season, you could probably expect the rest of the fruit to be about as close to it as possible, right? You're not going to, just because you got one apple at the beginning, you don't have to wonder and worry, well, I sure hope the rest are apples and not pears, you know? I sure hope that it's not like a bunch of oranges that come out of it. No, he's saying, okay, if one apple, if Christ has been raised in this way, then we can expect the rest to be the same. That we wonder what's going to happen to us. What is our resurrection body going to look like? Well, we can just look at the person of Christ. The stories that we just read. That's the first fruits. That's the, the beginning picture of what we will look like. He says in verse 24, Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom of God to the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says everything has been put under his feet, it is clear that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. Paul is like, I really got to be explicit with these people. He says, when he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God will be all, all. So what he's saying, and what I think is crystal clear from the scriptures, that our bodies will be raised from the dead. And I know this, this sounds almost weird for us to hear, doesn't it? Like typically, what we talk about most is someone dies, well, they're just going to be in heaven forever. Um, and most of the time, uh, those conversations come up in really awkward situations, like if someone has just lost a loved one, they're like, oh, now they're going to be in heaven forever. Probably not the best time to correct them. Be like, well, they'll be in heaven until they get a new body. 
we could probably wait. Um, so that's why we have these conversations now, so that I don't have to like ruin your family member's funeral, because that's not a good time to talk about that. But we can see that we have a lot of clumsy language that doesn't quite describe this, right? It, our language usually describes like a two-step process. Death, and it's just afterlife in heaven. It's the end of the story. But what we see in Scripture is that, no, that's not the end of the story. Actually, after that, Christ then brings us back to life in our new bodies. And just looking at 1 Corinthians 15, um, depending on your interpretation of the book of Revelation, I guess, this chapter in 1 Corinthians 15 is actually the longest chapter on eschatology, on the end of the world, on the future in the entire Bible. It's the longest one. So if this is the longest chapter in the whole Bible about what will happen for eternity, how many times do you see the word heaven in this chapter? And scan it quickly, but I'll tell you, Paul doesn't actually mention it a single time, not once. Because while we will spend immediately after death, we spend time in heaven to be absent of the body, to be present with Christ, that's not the end of the story, right? When Jesus returns, depending on when that happens, if we've fallen asleep yet, as Paul says, or not, or if we were with him in heaven, we will also return. We will be raised to new life. And actually, eternity, and where we would spend the most time, is on the new earth, in new bodies, life in the new creation. And this is actually what a New Testament scholar N.T. Wright refers to as the hope of life after life after death. Right? We don't just have a hope of an afterlife. We have hope of a life after that life in heaven. Actually, heaven is not the end of the story. Then, as we saw, if you go back to the, the three-step process, that actually what the Bible describes in life is not this two-step process, like Plato said, but it actually teaches that our life has three steps, right? We have a body. We're born on this physical earth. It's beautiful, but it's heartbroken. <clears throat> because sin entered through Adam, we know all that that has affected. And then there is death. There is death where, like we said, we're absent to the body, present with God, life with God in heaven. And as you read through the Bible, one of the things you'll notice is that over and over again, there aren't that many descriptions of what heaven is like, but it's always described as with God, in God's presence, with him. That's really the best thing. But that's not the end of the story, because then there's the new creation and this resurrection. Resurrection. The idea is that at death, like your humanity is ripped apart. It's like your body sits on the ground and your spirit goes to be with God. Eventually, God is going to put you back together into the whole person intended for you. Because of that, that we're called to love the Lord with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our strength, with all of who we are. That we are not just a spirit, you know, having a physical experience, moving through life is all of who we are. All of who we are. That's how the Bible talks about the hope that we have. The hope of life after death, and then it's the hope of resurrection after death. Not just this non-bodily bliss floating around on a cloud, which I'm kind of glad about. You get to do that, but then new life, new creation. New creation. So Paul continues, in verse 35, because he's kind of just shaking all these people's worlds. He's like, he's just explained that they're getting new bodies and they're really confused. 
wait, what? How on earth can this happen? And so he's going to explain, essentially, what this spiritual body is going to be like. And he's having to fight against that uh, Plato's view of spiritual body. And he's trying to explain, okay, well, if you remember what Jesus was like, it was like that. Um, but he goes on in verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? Verse 36, Paul says, how foolish, right? Um, he basically says, you fool. He's kind of saying like, wake up, listen. He says, get away from Plato, read the Bible. He says, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant um, the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined. And to each kind of seed, he gives it its own body, right? Not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds have another, and fish have another. There are also heavenly bodies, and there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind, and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon has another, and the stars another, and the stars differ from star splendor. So this next metaphor that he's using is, depending on the environment, you need a different body. If you're going to live in the ocean, you should probably have a fish body. If you're going to live in the air, you should probably have a bird body. If you're going to live on God's new world, you need a heavenly body. This imperishable body. This is the one that we see Jesus with. As he continues on, verse 42. So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. Essentially, your new body. The body that is so imperishable, it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, right, in sin. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised spiritual body. And in the context here, he's arguing that this resurrection body is not immaterial in the way that Plato talks about it, right? It's not just, it's not just mystical and not at all physical. He says it's, it's animated by the Holy Spirit. It's that picture we talked about last week of the desires of the flesh and the desires of the spirit, right? The flesh is that picture of sin. It's the picture of the part of your will that wants to go against God. And your new body will not be like that, will not be animated by sin or have that inherited desire for sin. It'll be animated by the Holy Spirit. It'll be empowered by the Spirit to be like that, just like Christ was. So he continues on. He says, if there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, the last Adam, a life-giving spirit. This Adam being Jesus. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. The first man was of dust of the earth, the second man was of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are on the earth, and as is the heavenly man, so are those who are and just as we have been born the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the, he of the heavenly man. So as we consider, well, what does that mean? What is this heavenly man? We have that picture that we just read, John's gospel, of what Jesus is like, right? And if all of our lives focused on being like Jesus, Right? Usually we think of being like Jesus as morality, right? Being loving to others, being caring, selfless. Well, also, we know that God is the one who completes that work of making us like Christ, 
obviously, in terms of morality, because we don't reach that on our own, but also because in the end, you will be raised to new life like Christ. And he's saying, look, this is a picture given you to know what your hope is, what it will be like. So as we consider, well, what does it mean to no longer be the earthly person, but to be the heavenly person, we look at Christ's resurrection body. That's what we have to look at. We have to look at Jesus there. That's what Paul is teaching about. Okay, well, it looks like he was physical, but he was so different. He had changed so much. He still ate food, so if you're into food, be encouraged. Get to enjoy that. And he was still physical enough to be touched by the disciples, but yet somehow the doors were locked, and that didn't seem to matter about him entering the room. So it just worked completely different. Physical, it's but it's spiritual. But it's not Plato's spiritual. It's heavenly in terms of God's nature there. And I don't actually have this fully fleshed out as um, a metaphor, as an example here, but I just listened to this really interesting podcast on caterpillars. I was hanging Christmas lights, and I was listening to this Radio Lab podcast about how caterpillars turn into butterflies. And maybe you were homeschooled like me and uneducated, where you thought that maybe caterpillars just crawl into their cocoon and then they just grow wings. But actually, they change so much. Caterpillars look nothing like butterflies. Absolutely nothing like butterflies. They change so much that actually, if you were to cut open their chrysalis, their cocoon at the time, you wouldn't just find, like, a little caterpillar with some stubs growing out. You find a liquid, like, protein soup that they pretty much turn completely into liquid. All of their parts and everything is completely shuffled up, and they come out like a completely different creature. I mean, it's absolutely amazing. It's also really messy. Uh, Lena has, like, you hatch them, I guess, grown caterpillars in her classroom before, and it's just a massacre. It's just like blood and guts everywhere because some, when they come out, a lot of the blood and guts comes out as well. Um, but that's the same word, that metamorphosis, um, that the New Testament will use sometimes for this new creation, for this new body. That it's not just like you go through this little change. It's like a complete change. Everything might turn to complete goop, but God will figure it out and put us back together there. And this is how Jesus' resurrection body was, right? It was completely different. Um, did you notice, did you take mental notes in the story that we read about to see that he was never recognized the first time? Nobody seemed to recognize him the first time. Um, he was recognized by his wounds. He showed him the scars in his hand, on his side. And I've always wondered, okay, he's like, Thomas, stick your hand on my side. How far did it go? You know, like, I wonder. Um, and then he was recognized by his voice, Right? Mary thought he was the gardener until he said, Mary, she recognized him. Or it was with the disciples on the road to Emmaus. They didn't recognize him until he had broke bread and gave it to them. And then it says that their eyes were opened. They said, did not our hearts burn within us? Right? And then it was even on the seashore when he asked them if they had anything to eat, and then he served them breakfast, that they didn't actually recognize him until he calls out Peter. They recognized him from the so he seems to be completely different. His resurrection body is clearly physical. He's eating food. He's able to, like, walk and do those things. But apparently it's so different. Butterfly is different. He wasn't recognized even in the circle there, apparently, until he said, just be with me. And so it's something sort of the same, but something so different here. Completely different. 
And so here's a little bit, here's a way to look on the bright side. If you're not happy with your physical body with something that aches or hurts, or you're not happy with the way it looks, you're going to be completely different. That's great. But one of the things I did notice is if he was recognized by his voice, I wonder, are we going to have the same voice? Is this just to show that the sheep know the shepherd's voice? Or like for people that have really annoying voices or maybe like really annoying laughs, will they still have that annoying voice and annoying laugh in the future? I wonder. You might be stuck with it. I wouldn't get your hopes up too much. That's when you're just going to accept this is the voice God gave me. Um, but the real thing is here, as we see heaven coming to earth, we see that what we need as fish need a fish body to be in the sea, birds need a bird body to be in the air, on the new earth, in God's presence, we need new bodies. That's the analogy that Paul is giving here. Um, and we know that the Bible says no person can be in God's presence and live. But we know that Jesus is resur- in Jesus' resurrection body, he ascended to the right hand of the Father. He took humanity right into the presence of God. And so one day, when God's face and earthly space united in full, when Jesus returns... This is the new body that, that we need to be in God's presence. And it's so different. It's so changed. This new body will be incorruptible, it says. Free from sin, right? Free from sin. Able to be in presence, right? Because it says in the book of Revelation that God himself is the light source of the new earth. God himself is the light. So in order to not be sunburned, I need this body, right? This abundant life that we are given. Continue on in verse 50, and we'll wrap up this chapter here. In verse 50, Paul says, I declare to you, brothers and sisters, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. Addressing like, what happens to people? Jesus returned before they Die. He said, we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will all be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. No more death. And when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Now he's quoting Isaiah chapter 25, that death has been swallowed up victory. Paul quotes Isaiah 25 here. Let me just read it for you. All that is promised. It says, On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wine. And on this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. And in that day, they will say, Surely this is our God. We trusted in him, and he saved us. This is the Lord. Trusted in him. Let us be glad in salvation. This passage here from Isaiah, that's the end of history that we have hope in. It's the end story that we have to look forward to. Now, it sounds pretty physical, right? It's mountains and cities and food, apparently, right? That Jesus didn't just come so that once we'd have faith, he'd just whisk us all away, never be here again. 
And I think that's really important because I think it's important to understand that what we, what we hope for, what we picture when we think of eternity and what God's planned in the end is, that affects the way that we live today. Because if we think that in the end, kind of the whole human story was just a failure, there's never going to be any living physical human again, we're just going to be spirits, this earth is just going to be burned and done away with, then honestly, why go to Mexico? Why do any of that? Um, why help our neighbors down the street? Why take care of our body if we even care about health? Why pray for healing if the body is just a prison, right? Why do any of that? But to realize that, no, no, our eternity will be on a new earth, in new bodies, for eternity in God's presence. And for those who follow Jesus, this has everything to do with our lives today. That if that's the end of the story, which seems to be according to the scriptures, then we know that God's not just abandoning this whole project, but actually because of that, 2,000 years ago, we know Jesus walked out of a tomb, but he's alive. He's alive today. So what happens in the physical world that seems so pointless, seems like it's just going to be the end of the story, no, Jesus is alive today. So we can work and sweat and bleed for the kingdom here because apparently anything is possible. Apparently whatever happens to these bodies, they will be fixed. They will be made new. And throughout history, as you look at Christianity expanding through the world, as you look at the good things that the church has done throughout history, and as you look at how empires were afraid and terrified of Christians, one of the main reasons is that they were not afraid of death. They were not afraid of what could be done through the body because they knew they would get a new one. And this all comes from the reality that we know 2,000 years ago, Jesus walked out of a tomb. He's alive today. He was raised in a new body. And as the first fruits, we too will be raised. So that's the hope that we have. Hope that we have of a resurrection. And I know that hope has become kind of a pretty useless word that we just threw around. I literally said that I hope you finish your leftovers this week. <clears throat> I didn't kind of realize that. I'm like, oh yeah, this is how we use this. But, but I think hope is bigger than that. The idea that we have hope that bringing a new creation, new life, new bodies to each and every one of us, even him. So I think that puts everything in perspective in this life. When we consider the things that we're worried about, consider that in light of these new bodies. Jesus is back from the dead. Hope. Because of that. Jesus is back from the dead, and the same spirit that raised him from the dead is alive in each and every one of you. And it's alive that friend, that spouse that you're fighting with, alive in your boss, life miserable, maybe, actually, I take it back, I don't know your boss, um, but, but he's alive in the city, in pockets, showing these hints and these glimpses of what the new creation will look like. So that's our call as well, that just as Jesus went through life, as we're going to see in the next few weeks, as we look at stories of him healing, as we look at stories of him loving on others, we see that anytime he was healing, he was declaring his authority over death, over sickness, that the death people were experiencing, he's making it very clear, one day this will not even be a factor, removing that sickness. When people were hungry and he was feeding them, he was declaring one day there's going to be a future with the best meats and the finest of wines for all people, right? 
We know that in the hills, it's hard to grow stuff. The wineries that are trying to make wine out of rhubarb and raspberries, it's terrible. It's just a result of the fall. It's really sad. But one day, a banquet of aged wine is So we see all of these ways in which the world is not the way it should be. All of these ways in which death in the current earthly body is falling. And we have the opportunity, knowing the end of the story, to show and to display what it will actually look like. What hope we do actually have. What hope we do actually have. In the loving of others, feeding of others, everything we do can point to the day when that's no longer even because Jesus is alive in a new body. Not just a spiritual metaphor. Jesus is alive. Now, turn to him. Let's praise him for that. So let's pray as we continue on in worship. Father God, um, we just praise you. Um, we just praise you for this reality. And though it is it's hard for us to truly grasp, hard for us to truly understand, uh, would you just comfort each and every one of us in these seasons of life when we are faced just right in front of us with death, with sickness, with hunger, with pain, with tears, would you comfort us with the hope that we have in you? Would you remind us of what Jesus was like when he was raised from the dead? That we have that hope. We have the hope of being with you for eternity. That though we're so unworthy to come before you now, God, one day, we'll be in your presence in full. And though we live in the, the now and the not yet, would you just empower us to live according to your values, even on an earth that is not made right. As we, as we seek to live empowered by your spirit, not by the flesh, even in these current bodies, would you help us to do that? That we would be able to live in accordance with your will, that we would be able to live as people of Jesus, even on a world that, that doesn't yet know you. And God, would you just make us agents of your gospel? Would you make us witnesses to that? That others would see us, the way that we live, with this hope of a new body, of a new creation. That others would see you as truly Jesus. That's our hope. That it would be all about you. And in the words of Matthew 17, as we read earlier, that they would see no one but you. So that's our hope today. And would that be the picture that we all leave here with? Just a picture of Christ's resurrected body. So we love you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.
go, and when you go with the words that Paul finishes that chapter in 1 Corinthians 15 with, where he says that when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true, that death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? And then he says, in light of all that, in light of the hope that we have of the resurrection, therefore, my dear brothers, as you wait for that day, stand firm, let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So grace and peace come from. Thank you for being here this morning. Have a wonderful week. I was like, I forgot how to do this.
you 